Welcome to the Locavore Podcast. This is where we dig deep into the stories behind the hundreds of locally sourced, artisan, bespoke and innovative products available to you in one location at White's IGA on the Sunshine Coast. The Locavore program was officially launched in 2013 to showcase and highlight to White's IGA customers where their food came from and help connect them to the families who create it. I'm Dave Matthews from Podspot. We're the producers of the Locavores podcast. Now, Roz White's a little busy at the moment, so what we've done is we've put together some highlights of the episodes that have happened so far, just in case you missed some of the gold that's happened. All right, let's get into it. A Locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown, raised, or produced locally. This is the Locavore podcast, brought to you by White's IGA. All right, let's get started with this one. Episode one, Kenilworth Dairies from the legend John Cochran. Floods have been a part of my life as well, but we'd go down the flat and we'd chase a cow up and, of course, you know what you do first and you'd run over and stand in that warm cow pack. Oh, yeah, yeah. To keep your feet warm. Absolutely, yeah. Made you grow, didn't it? Like you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of natural immunities, yeah. I tell you. <laughs> I was on the board at um, have Premier Milk, which is a group of farmers that supplied pools. I was on the board for 31 years um, and I did 10 years of representing farmers at the QDO. I've qualified as a cattle judge and judged around the country. So I travel with my grandfather doing those, you know, learning and, and a lot with my grandfather and dad. And I can remember when I left school, all I wanted to be is a dairy farmer. And you will probably, oh, you might not remember this. I'm a little older than you, was. <laughs> <laughs> but Britain joined the European common market and farmers collapsed everywhere. Mm. And I can remember the sheer hurt involved. And one of those hurts was that I had to leave the farm and become a butcher. Yeah, wow. Because they'd eat. You wear many hats, don't you? <laughs> well, I had two, well, you know, Margaret and I had two shops in Gippie, two butcher shops in Gippie, but it was a means to get back to farming. And I can remember there was a clearing sale, just to let you know how tough those years were. There was a clearing sale at Cedar Pocket, and this guy had to sell everything because mm. he'd had hard times. He had to sell his furniture, his shooks, the works. Mm. And the fully grown Jersey bull made $4. Wow. And the rooster made 5 Wow. So then I had to leave the farm because they'd eat and that's yeah. when I became a butcher. But when we sold the shops, I really wanted to go back dairying. And I can remember the first dairy meeting I went to, Dad was sitting up the front on the board and I clearly remember sitting in that, in that crowd of people and saying to myself, because I'd walked through the car park and I was looking at all the old broken down cars and these farmers were very, very, very tired people. They were working to try and stay alive and stay in business. And I remember sitting in that that night, uh, the Civic Centre in Gympie, and I promised myself there and then that I would do my best to change the dairy industry and try and give these people a better living. When we were kids on the farm, we, we learnt to look after one another and treat one another like you'd like to be treated yourself. And I think that's a real grounding on farms. And providing food for the nation is just a thing that, that gives you um, a really nice feeling. Mm. We always had this feeling that you want to do something for the other farmers and, and, and get them a better living mm. because farming is very, very tough. Mm. Um, my mum and dad's charter was to feed and clothe us and teach us right from wrong and look after others and all those sorts of things. So that grounding just grows with you as you grow through. I used to look like Holsteins. I was red on jerseys. Yeah. But because the consumers, um, and this is a bit of a fault of farmers, I think, you know, people say, oh, I milk jerseys because I love them. Yeah. I milk freesians because I love them. Yeah. But what we didn't do 
is consult the consumer and say, what milk do you want? Mm. So now um, I get a mixture of milk, you know, some browns with some Frisian, some Jersey yeah. to get a milk that people want. Mm. And if you, that's what you've got to do. You've got to please your customer. You surely do. Let the customer decide. This one is from Four Ingredients, Episode 2, The Lovely Kimikoska. So what is your magic and how did it all start? Oh, I think if I was to summarise the magic in one word, which is really difficult because there's obviously a lot of peelers to the success of a business, but in terms of the benefit, like a macro like bird's eye view, in one word to summarise the magic or success of four ingredients, I think would be easy. It is just easy. It is easy to cook good food at the end of a busy day with what's in your cupboard when you know how. I have this innate frugal streak. I waste nothing. And I always have some frozen veggies too, because on that veggie smuggling thing, and I say this to everyone, you use my recipes as a base. You know, a beautiful chicken tikka masala, a bit of tikka paste, some lovely chicken, bring it all together with a tin of Heinz Big Red. Those two flavours together are absolute magic. They're a powerhouse. It's a delicious meal. I'm never going to serve that up just with tikka paste, chicken and tomato soup at my house because in my house, on any given day, because we are blessed to live in this absolute amazing country called Australia where we have this rich, fertile soil and right amount of rainfall and beautiful number of sunshine days and we create all this fabulous fresh produce. Mm. On any given day, you open up our my fridge and there's vegetables in my crisper. I want to take you back. I'm a little scratchy little kid from the bush and I know <laughs> we kind of grew up not far from each other and that was a funny, funny little meeting in itself, wasn't <laughs> it, when you said, what? Nobody comes from Colston Lake. <laughs> and you grow up just up the road and Mundabra. in Mundabra, which is in the North Burnett, which is rural, regional yeah. Queensland. Tell me a little bit about Kim Acosca as a kid growing up. You know, you got a great relationship with your mum and dad yeah. uh, and your family. Dinner tonight with them. <laughs> and enduring friendships that yeah. I've witnessed firsthand, that those really long, enduring friendships that you went to school, you know, with those oh, fabulous, school. fabulous ladies from Mundabra. I know. We're all off to Melbourne next week. Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> and so what, tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up yeah. and also what I want to touch on is was some of the inspiration because, you know, 1970s apricot chicken, savoury mints on, on a hamburger bun. Yeah, um, and golden syrup dumplings. And what about when you had an orange and you put a round of cabana, a square of cheddar, oh, yeah, totally. and you topped yeah. it with one of those garish, you know, coloured oh. cocktail. Oh, onions. I, or if you were really posh. Likes it. Or a gherkin. Oh, we're stuffed all As If you were really With a little red centre. <laughs> <laughs> no, a cornishan, darling, it is a now. Cornishan. A cornishan now. I know. But um, you know what is old is new again. Oh, screaming yeah. by the on the sidelines of your son, Raina, running and training. And, <laughs> uh, what we do as mums, isn't it, and business owners, and it's wonderful that, you know, we're able to combine both lives from the Sunshine Coast. I feel extraordinarily blessed. I do too, mm. absolutely. Absolutely. We're very blessed to live here mm. and also be surrounded by such amazing talent. But the quality of the food mm. that is produced here and the entrepreneurship, you know, the spirit, it's almost like a pioneering spirit, isn't it? Where people come here and just
just have brain explosions and create all this incredibleness. And we're here to enjoy it because it's on our doorstep, but it's also available to the world, isn't it? You know, anyone that comes here can enjoy and be a part of that as well. And I think spirit and support, you know, what I find about this incredible community is that a good idea is, you know, we all seem to champion each other's products Mm. or services because they are good, they are creative. This one is from episode three, the absolute legend, Charlie Hacker, the V-Man. So, Charlie, you spent those early years of your life uh, even though you were a boat builder with your, well, you referred to them as grandma and granddad, but they weren't really. They're just, no, just kind of a nice, you know, a, a, a lovely <laughs> relationship you have with them in Banoa near in Southport on the, Gold, on the Gold Coast, um, John and Betsy Rosser. And so they obviously meant a lot to you and they had a big influence on that early part of your life and, and sort of that step into what is now your 50-year-long so far mm. almost. Oh, location. yeah, they, they – um, in those days, you, they were um, stationary beekeepers around the um, Southport, Numanbar Valley and the Lost World. They moved their bees, they, let's say they moved their queens from place to place, but they had to the, put a new queen from place to place and that's how they used to migrate their bees. And there was the work of the drone and the queen. Mm. I understood that the drone was lazy. Is this right? The drone uh, doesn't do much. The workers, well, they're you know, girls, working <laughs> girls. But the drone, apparently it's, is he, is that just like a myth or? No, it- no, drone doesn't do much. And they um, come wintertime anywhere, say, south of Brisbane, they would, drones would get kicked out of the hive. Well, so they should if they're not they're pulling not, their not weight, pulling Charlie. Their weight, hey, right. <laughs> you were a boat builder in your early life. Without giving away your age, how old were you then, Charlie? Oh, I would have been 25. I retired boat building when I was 25. Yeah, 25 years old. So what sort of boats were they? They were sailing boats, game fishing boats and prawn trawlers. Wow. Here's a bit of a, an interesting one to throw at you, Charlie, now. I read somewhere that bees can recognise human faces. Is that true? Do your bees oh. recognise you? And if so, do you get <laughs> mates' rates? Do they do they kind of like work a bit harder because they love Charlie? No, I think you'll find that uh, uh, people assume a lot of stuff about bees and they don't know much. So you've got a manuka honey that we we have in our Mm. stores that you Mm. would sell as well in Mm. markets and things Mm. like that, and also your beautiful lip balm because there's a lot of nourishing qualities in honey. It's a it's it heals wounds Mm. and has all sorts of purposes, doesn't it? Lots of lots of health benefits. So tell me a little bit about that and what are Mm. they? You know, with the University of the Sunshine Coast, how did that kind of Mm. partnership come about? Partnership came from our federal body, and the funding from our federal body covers the uh, testing of the Manuka honey and the MGO on the honey can vary from Townsville, Bundaberg and uh, Evans Head as the different species. There's 96 different species of Manuka but they're not all active. If you could share with us one last piece of advice, if you have a motto, are you live your life by, what would it be? That's a good question. <laughs> be busy as a bee. <laughs> <laughs> Run on bees pee. <laughs> so, yeah, mainly just look after your fellow person and, and uh, see that most families are really happy. Someone's such a great episode from episode four, Naomi Elliott from Concept Labs. Tell us a little bit about your day-to-day and the highlights and sometimes maybe the perils Mm. of families working together. So how does that go? Yeah, I've been very fortunate that mum and dad and I 
get along so well. So it originally started being a family business. I've worked on and off throughout the business all through when I was high school and my own career. It started, I started coming on 10 years ago full time in the business. I quit my job, moved overseas to study for a while with my son and came back and wasn't sure what to do. Mum and dad hadn't had a break for quite a long time and dad just wanted to travel around Australia in his caravan. So I said, look, go travel for as long as you like and I'll look after the business while I worked out what my next step in life was going to be. And yeah, 10 years later, I'm still there <laughs> learning so much more of things that I just never thought would would interest me. But we can go all day without seeing each other, but we do try to have lunch together every day. And that's our little debrief and catch up. But other than that, we can go all day without seeing each other in our operations. So it definitely has its challenges if you have, but I've been very lucky. We try to establish that we'll, we'll have a disagreement at work and two seconds later ask, are you doing dinner? Are you picking up the kids? <laughs> so yeah, very lucky that we get along so well. This year has been all about me and trying to work out what my purpose is, what my passion is and where to go to from there. I have got quite strong values, which are well aligned with the family. I think that's why mum and I work so well together is that we both have very similar values that I guess have been instilled in me since going through. So I guess going back to is this beneficial for people, for our planet and living by that pretty much. There's one that mum has run by, which I absolutely love as well. Gratitude heals your mind, body and spirit. So that's beautiful. Working with I that. I can hear Sue saying that. Yeah. <laughs> she's such a beautiful, soft lady, but she's a dynamo. Absolutely. So you try to use more sustainably like RSPO, sustainable palm oil, if certain products I guess, need palm-derived products. So just wherever possible, choosing that best best option. We've got a range uh, that we've done for our customers using 100% recycled plastic in their packaging. So just depending on what the brand message is um, for our customers and what is available and balancing that cost against, I guess, looking after the environment as well. So the other big thing that my mum Sue is actually working on is creating that circular economy and regenerative economics, which is a holistic living system. So it's in the means well-being of people and planet as it is as important to companies as the financial bottom line. So you're starting to see reports come through from major corporations about their regenerative economics then Mm. just so your profitability. Yeah, so it is very much a, it's a very it is, exciting. It's exciting and it's great that here on the Sunshine Coast you're manufacturing products mm. and helping bring that to life for you know people that can be distributed in products that can be distributed all over the world because yeah. you do export, don't you? Yeah, we're currently exporting to 11 countries, yeah. a lot into the to New Zealand, UK, US, yeah, yeah. China, Singapore, Malaysia. So you're a mother uh, yeah. and you have your... Got three children. Three children and, yes. your, and your partner, Harry. Yeah. How do you go with balancing those three gorgeous children and life, business? <laughs> yeah. Depends on who you ask on what day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we've got when Sunday is our family day. So I, I make sure there's no computers. Sunday is always dedicated to family. I do work a lot of Saturdays just to try to catch up and having no staff or our operations not going, it is good to catch up. And Wednesday nights is family dinner night. So I'm nice. always home on time for dinner. Perry is the cook in our family. Ooh. I couldn't do what I do without him. He is amazing. He picks up a lot of the sacks. So a lot of the running around and sports duties is, is on Perry. So he does a lot of that with the kids. I, I guess it's not not necessarily about time, it's about quality as well. Mm. So just being 
being present with them and learning with them and doing what they like to enjoy. One focus of mine ha- since I was ill in 2019 has been on me. Uh, like I guess a lot of working mums, you always tend to put yourself last. So I started yoga and meditation two or three years ago. I just, I love that time. An mm. hour in the studio with no phones, no smartwatches, no computers, no one can get hold of me. It has really helped me focus and get that balance. Mm, good, balance to, good to know, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. It's just that mindfulness where you're focusing on, yeah. on you. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sit there and think, I suppose. I yeah. Mm. Well, I have really struggled with that. I'm trying to be, I say the mindfulness, so just empty your mind, don't think. I'm like, how do you sit here and don't think? <laughs> so I guess learning how to do that, but also channeling it. So I think I no longer sit there and try, I guess it's about not getting angry with yourself. And they're going, just all these thoughts, get out of my head, get out of my head. I'm trying to meditate, get out, stop thinking. So sitting there and just going, okay, oh yeah, I've got to do that. And casually acknowledging those thoughts going, yes, okay, I forgot to do that. I'll do that when I get in, acknowledging it and then letting it go. So yeah. I guess that's what I'm trying to work through now yeah. is just acknowledging that, but having that time to just stop and think. So I find that you're racing constantly all day. Mm. You think, oh, I forgot about that. I forgot about mm. that. And just being able to sit there and think. And do that at a at a reasonable hour instead of 2.30 in the morning yes. when you wake up yep. in the middle of the night, <laughs> there's all those thoughts yep. roaring through your head. Yep. <laughs> we were mind blown by this entrepreneur. Episode five, Bailey Page from ZipZap. Quite an interesting story of how it came about it. So following that, that night out, went online, had a look for a charger that just didn't require a cable. And I went through all the biggest companies in Australia, through like Belkin, through um, Signet, Apple, looked at Telstra, like just looked at a variety of the biggest companies and said, surely there's a product that doesn't require a cable. And I was quite shocked to find that there was nothing here in Australia um, other than that wireless charging pad, but you still need to connect that into a PowerPoint and your power bank with uh, the cord. So sort of sparked my interest of like, wow, that's a bit strange that something that in my terms convenient isn't on the market. So then I went and looked into the American market through Amazon and a few other of their big platforms and still couldn't find a product within that range. So me being the young kid I am, I was Running up to mum, just like, mum, I found an idea. <laughs> so then I pitched it to the manufacturers. We had three prototypes with the third one being the final product. And then, yeah, it, it was sort of a crazy uh, launch period where it was just, it was a Tuesday night and we had finally had our stock arrive. This was in August of last year. Um, we had a batch of 200 units arrive first and I was just over the moon. I was yeah. like, oh, my God, we finally have product here in Australia. That's amazing. amazing. And then mum was actually the one who was like, why don't you just launch it to friends and family? I said, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So, but, yeah, it was surprised that found nothing online. So that's sort of what started the whirlwind after that. Goodness sakes, that's unbelievable. So you've obviously identified that there was a, a gap there, uh, that you couldn't find the thing that you were really wanting. Yep. And you came up with the idea and that's one thing, but actually then taking an idea and creating a solution and a product and launching it and you're 21 years old, that's so impressive. She calls me and she's like, Bailey, do you have a minute to talk? I said, always for you, mum, no worries. And she goes, well, you need to get your stuff together. You have a meeting with Sunrise, live interview, 6am Monday morning. And I went... 
Oh, my God. So I'm sitting there waiting and I was just like my nerves are building as yes. you're waiting because you just don't yeah. know when you're going to go. Sure. So they just instantly cross over to you and go, all right, now to Bailey. And you have 15 seconds to shout out your business. Wow. So because I was still a bit blurry-minded, I was like, what am I going to say in 15 seconds that's really going to sell myself? So I was just sitting there thinking and as I thought I got – a lot more anxious, a lot more nervous, and then I was ended up being the fifth, the fifth oh, business. So I was the very last one. Lucky last. Lucky last. And surprisingly, I actually got two minutes of airtime, and Perfect. I was the only one out of the five that got to have a full conversation with Sam. And then the studio crew, which is like Koshi and a few other big names, they were asking questions to me. And I was the only one that was lucky enough to have that conversation. From that day, we sold close to 1,500 units from that two minutes of airtime. Oh, that's absolutely unreal. Um, And that's what really elevated my brand Mm. beyond. This next highlight was from episode six, Coco Pod. It was a pretty sweet interview. Not only for the topic, but also the guest. Bridget will know. So you've had enormous success award-winning this beautiful quality premium chocolate that we are delighted that you produce here on the beautiful Sunshine Coast. Your customer base, the depth, the awareness of, of your brand is just continuing to grow. Take me back to the beginning. Your journey started in 2012 while you're on maternity leave as a primary school teacher. So Tell me how it began. Where did it all start and how did you get into chocolate? Oh, I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me that. It started as a hobby, genuinely speaking. It was, I was a school teacher on mat leave. My husband was working away overseas for long periods of time, months on end. And I guess I just was somewhat bored, somewhat frustrated that I, my career was on, on hold and I just was just a bit empty, like learning for something to do that, that first year of a baby is is great in discovery and everything, but it's also very lonely. Mm. And we were living far away from my family. And so I just used to read books and, and play with cakes and chocolates and more so cakes, really. And then I started making wedding cakes for people who were getting married. And I did that for about a year. And then at some point in winter, nobody was getting married. Um, and I had nothing to do. So I started to play with chocolate. And then in order to continue to play, chocolate is a very expensive ingredient to play with. And so in order to buy more chocolate to continue to play, I used to sell the existing chocolates in the markets. Then I would get some money and then go back and buy more to play for the next week. And then this went on for a few months. My sister was on maternity leave as well, so she'd come with me. And it was just a means to an end to continue to do what I wanted to do behind closed doors. And then at some point it just... I don't know, it just exploded. People kept coming back. They'd come back week after week for the same thing or the next thing. We got feedback. And and as the time went on, I discovered like different ways of packaging and selling and what worked and what didn't work and was just inspired to kind of test the next trend, I suppose, and just see if what I thought was going to work would work. Then we came into summer and everything didn't work because obviously it's a different season. And so we just worked out different climate control and different weathers and packaging. And anyway, and then at some point we picked up a bunch of wholesale and uh, my husband came home one year. I'd been doing markets for maybe two years by this point. I was still marking Naplan as a teacher. I was still doing a bit of everything. Uh, And then he came home one day and and all of a sudden our domestic home-based kitchen, which was registered with council and, you know, we had everything above board. It was just, it was just ridiculous. Like he said to me, you 
we this is Willy Wonka's house and we're living here. Like you either have to, <laughs> you either have to stop or we have to scale. If you fast forward to today, we've been in that space maybe five and a half years. We now own the building. Mm. We now, at the end of this month, will occupy the entire building, all five sheds. Um, we Our team is you know, has definitely grown. We now maybe stop 300 stockers across Australia. We've done export. Uh, yes, we have heaps of awards. The business has awards. The products have awards. It's It really has been like a wild journey. And if you had have said to me, you know, all that time back there that this little like hobby, I suppose, would have turned into something that would feed the families of multiple people as well as our own, I I may not have believed you. Yeah, I know. But it's, I'm it's, certainly, you know, glad to have pursued what I thought was going to be just a hobby, but it became a dream. Everything that we do at Cocoa Pods is very fresh, like quick turnaround. Being small, small producer, we're able to do that. We could make the caramelization, make the nut one day and then jar them up and have them to your store the next day. Mm, it's, it's simple. That is it incredible. is very quick turnaround, assuming that we have everything, you know, in stock and everything that we can work with. But yeah, we pretty, we essentially couldn't do them in one day, but you could definitely turn them around in two. Wow, so. that's amazing. Yeah. So if anyone wants a pallet of macadamia, <laughs> of chocolate-coated macadamia nuts, we can sort that out within 72 <laughs> hours. We've just got to tell oh. Bridget and make sure she doesn't have a, a conniption along the way. <laughs> <laughs> you've achieved so much. You know, your brand has come such a long way. You've learned so much. You're really home your skills. Yeah, must you must just pinch yourself sometimes and wonder where this journey is going to continue to go and grow. And I'm definitely excited to see where it is going. I feel like I'm not that surprised, to be honest, because I'm working really hard for it. So like everything is a direct result of my efforts. And as a family, my husband as well, like he's now fully on board at first. I mean, he probably was an, indulging my idea of a hobby and he was away and he probably yeah. was just thinking, oh, at least she's busy. She's distracted and she's doing, you know, keeping her happy. But now like he he's, you know, fully involved in in our operations as well. What a legend. This highlight comes from episode seven, Pepper Leon's Kitchen. Emmanuel had a great time. I believe good food helps us celebrate special occasions, the good times, family times, and even unites us through sad and challenging times. I'm so excited to welcome and introduce the founder, chef, local producer of Pepe Leon's Kitchen, Emmanuel. Thank you, Roz, for having me. I want you to transport us back to the place where it all started. Yes, my grandfather was a chef that's always cooked the best gnocchi, ravioli and pasta. And it, my Italian grandma as well, she always done, you know, capelletti and just always made things for, for everyone. Yeah, I decided, you know, probably one day was a good idea to maybe just share these recipes, those recipes with everyone. So actually share the recipes or just yeah. the beautiful it was result of the recipes. Probably, probably the results. Yeah, actually. you hang <laughs> on to these things, don't you? They're like little family treasures, aren't they? It is, and but they, I had to adapt them to gluten free. So, and the reason to make them gluten free was to my partner who cannot eat gluten. Basically, I was like, oh, she cannot eat those recipes. She can't. She can't test the food. So I'm just going to have to find a way and. So I did. So where did you start with that? Because so in general terms, without giving away any of your secrets or your magic, you know, fresh pasta is basically like a flour. Obviously, that would be the main ingredient. And so you had to replace that with a substitute, which there's a broad range of substitutes available now, isn't there? There there is a lot. I've tried a lot of different flours and then just was not happy with any of them. So I just just basically look up. Internet is a great thing these days. You can just 
you can find anything you want. So people share ideas and I find gluten-free flowers is just so many, you can, you can make so many different ones for so many different things. When you use plain flour, I think it's, you use one type for pretty much everything. Right. But when, when you use gluten-free flour, you can, you, you know, you just change the recipes a bit. And so, so do you get a better results? Yeah, yeah. Right. So a different type or a substitute. Yeah. So what, like a tapioca yeah, or a tapioca. rice flour yeah. or. And you um, just, and you, you just get... use different, different amounts for different recipes. It works better, I think. Right. So it's so the. I had to find the right one for pasta. Yeah. And yeah, tried a few different ones. What led you to us, and and how did that go for you? How did that feel? Oh, well, I'm a, I'm actually like I find that's my personal point of view. I think I'm a bit shy, and I don't know for some reason I just thought like you know you promote the locals, and I see I'm, I just I great you do like what you do for your businesses and for White Sage and what you've achieved over the years, and I thought you know like just. It's worth trying and asking, like, just I'll go and see Roz and see what she thinks. No, just, I have a motto too, which is if you don't ask, you don't get. I was trying really hard to make something as close as possible to what my grandfather and my grandma, my Italian grandma made because I really wanted people to be able to taste, you know, the food I grew up to because um, being in France, so many people always commented on how great their food was and Whatever they was, whatever they was doing was amazing, and just so. Mm. But we grew up, we grew up eating that food, and for me, it was nothing. Mm. Just, I mean, it was special, but we just didn't realize how special it was. Yeah. And quite frankly, I started by mostly f- to share this this food with people. I didn't, I didn't think like I want to make a business to make money. It was just more to share. So your Pepperleon's kitchen uh, mantra is life is a combination of magic. What's the inspiration for that? I think life is a bit magic, isn't it? And mm. you have to have pasta in it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I love um, my grandfather always used to make a, a fresh tomato sauce mm. or Napoli sauce. And sometimes we had, he used to make um, like a French stew and we had this like. Like a ragu type like thing? A, like a, in French it's called a dob, which is like a, I don't know how you call it here, but it's, um, you marinate your meat. And then you cook this stew in red wine for like a long time. And Yummy. Michelle from Ugly Duck Fine Foods was an absolute legend. You've got to go listen to the whole episode, episode eight. But here's one highlight we loved. You already as a child had that mindset about preserving the food that wasn't accessible or available to you in the winter. Perhaps maybe was that your inspiration behind making imperfect food? Looking for a new career, I turned to the tradition of family jam making because I don't know. It just felt right. We're so pleased you did, Michelle. Thank you. In my private life, I always make jams for myself because mm. I just I just enjoy eating it and that's how I grew up. But when I decided that, I was just really touched by seeing all the food waste and immediately I thought, why are we not using it? Why is nobody interested in this? There is a solution. Obviously, you make jam from this. So I thought, oh, well, nobody else wants to do it. I'll do it. A lot of fruit that we buy by the pellet and we have the farmer delivering it straight into our kitchen and we cook it up, you know, straight away. And then how, how long does it take to kind of create a batch and then package it and then freight it out? And how soon could it be on my shelves, for instance, it's for our customers really to enjoy? It's really fast because we are so local. Like we do source most of our fruit from the area. So we let's say we get get delivery on Monday, 
we cook it on Tuesday. By the end of Tuesday, it's packaged, it's labelled, it's in its box. It can be shipped on Wednesday and you can have it on your shelf on Thursday. We got selected to do a accelerator program, the Grow Coastal program, mm. and that was a game changer for yeah. us. We learned so much and so we that made was great a 12, connections. That was a 12-week program run, run through the Innovation Centre at the mm-hmm. university, wasn't it? Yeah. For foodpreneurs, entrepreneurs, startups to give them a little bit of guidance and understanding about things like logistics, distribution, yeah. you know, financials, all the aspects. Aspects of, of a business, wasn't it? And packaging, yeah. all those packaging, really important things. Branding, yeah. everything. It was yeah. the whole deal and it was a game changer. I mean, what can you say about this next guest? A highlight from episode 10, Artie Vella from Sun Valley Fine Foods. You have such an interesting background yourself, your own personal story. And I just want to open that little door and talk about you and then we'll talk more then about how your contribution and how you're influencing your experience and your expertise, how that's influencing on Sun Valley Fine Foods. You're a butcher by trade. Butcher by trade, actually since I was about 15. So, and I actually started with David's father as an apprentice in Nambour. So I did 11 years there actually with their family butchers. So... Yeah, been butchering all my life on the Sunshine Coast and haven't got any sort of inklings to leave the coast either. I love it. It's yeah. a great place to be. I'd love to really amplify for our customers and our stores the Indigenous food flavours. Oh, okay, yeah. And that would be – maybe that's something you could we integrate could, yeah. into yeah, where your lemon, lemon myrtle, myrtles, and... your wattle, mm. your finger limes, all yeah. those things. Yeah, there's – and the kumquat, the – Oh, I can never pronounce it. The bush to, no, the bush tomato. There's another name for it. Yeah, but there's so many different flavours and spices. Native mm. pepper. Native pepper's really good. It's yeah. it's really nice in the lemon myrtle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, beautiful and really good for you and I think very nourishing and nurturing yeah. too, aren't they? Maybe we can it. do an infused ham yes. with lemon myrtle. Yes, oh, my gosh. Go, go, Artie, oh, I'm wow. waiting. There you go. Look we'll at have that. it for our opening. That's for, how inspiration um, starts. Yeah, when you yeah. start talking to people like yourself yeah, just now and yeah. I just go, huh. Yeah. Lemon myrtle ham. So we are pretty fussy in what we want and we will reject something if it's not right. So Yeah. yeah. And that's why you have a beautiful a beautiful range of beautiful small range goods. Of, yeah, of, yeah, of small yeah, goods. And yeah. interesting, you bringing that influence through your love, your passion for food, understanding and, and identifying and sourcing beautiful mm. quality products and then using your inspiration and your passion for food to bring the, the produce to a good produce product, great yeah. product. I remember your butcher shop and I reckon I was a customer then because that was before we got started in supermarkets yeah, right. and I was working in the bank and I'm pretty sure I'd go down to that little centre there and on a Thursday night because that was when you when you're busy working full time. That's it. After work go under your shop and yep. pop over to the butcher shop and and grab some beautiful yeah. beautiful I mean, we we sort of went on the banks of meals for 35, 40 minutes and we just went on that and that's where we grew our business. So. Mm. There's a lot of that real ready-to-go, mm. ready-to-cook-at-home, fresh, prepared, chef-prepared, beautiful product that local independent butchers that's are creating correct. now and yeah. they're really standing yeah. out, aren't they? Yeah. And it's fantastic to support your local butcher. It is. You've got to, is. We can't lose our local butchers. No, they're very precious no, to can't. us. No. When we're comparing what a deli is I today. I was probably crazy doing it because at the time delis and sort of the European backgrounds and, and food wasn't huge here on the coast. My probably biggest uh, 
clientele was the Germans and the Dutch. There yeah. wasn't many Italians or Maltese around at that time, but they taught me a lot of things and a lot of things about food. And that's probably where I got a lot of passion for food as well was through those guys. They mm. used to just say, buy this, buy that and try this. And some was good and some was just a failure. <laughs> but anyway, it was all good. We tried it and went from there. So that was a great experience, actually. So going back to My Kitchen Rules, what was your most memorable dish on that? was our first cook at my house, actually, and we did a pork belly twice cooked pork belly. I still remember Manu after the show and all that and we were talking, he's going, he said, I didn't think that you two could cook, but he said, that was the best crackling I've ever had in my life. And it was well, pretty, you got to yeah, love that comment. Yeah, yeah. It How did that a, make you yeah, feel, Yeah, I brought a tear to my eye. I can tell you, it was pretty, pretty emotional, yeah. But uh, funny two guys they are, but yeah. But that was probably a memorable one. Yeah, and the one that probably also stuck there was a beef cheek as well. But the pork belly was probably what, we got known for, yeah. And how did you make it the best crackling in the oh, I think it? I fluked it. Ah! <laughs> I'll admit that. I think I fluked Don't it. Don't say all, that, Artie. All, it's skill, pure yeah, skill. Yeah, pure skill, yeah. This one was a surprise for us because we're like, oh, yeah, refrigeration, yeah, that's pretty interesting, sort of. Well, it turned out to be one of the best interviews we've done so far. This is a highlight from John Maslin's Episode 11 from Advanced Refrigeration Technology. Welcome, Mr. John Maslin. Thank you, Roz. It's lovely to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really excited because you have a very inspiring story. You're doing something in your field that nobody has done before and also people in the industry and companies in the industry are actually following you around the world in some of the innovation that you've created and here you are on the Sunshine Coast, manufacturing refrigeration. It's an incredible story. So I'm super thrilled to be able to tell your story. Well, thank you. That's a lovely introduction. And yeah. uh, it's true. We do get copied around the world. We don't get a lot of recognition, obviously. Yeah. It's funny that your competitors don't like to okay. blow your tyres up, you know? but it is nice. And yeah. it, it's nice to be able to contribute to the environment and our industry. Well, it absolutely is. And I think that's become more and more important, particularly to people and being customers, people all around the world because of what's happening with the climate and there's concerns about the changes. But not only that, yes, we need to be responsible about how we operate, trying to conserve energy consumption, but it's also a lot of the innovation with your refrigerated cases also does many other things, doesn't it? So, you Absolutely. know, it, it preserves food longer, you get a better quality product because you have the consistency in temperature. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, you're right. There are many, many benefits to, to going green. Obviously, with our product, first and foremost, it must be a great marketing tool because it's there to sell your product. Mm. It also is there to preserve your product. Yeah. And we've put a lot of time and effort into maximising the, the display value of the cases, uh, as well as the energy efficiency. What a crack up this lady was, Karen Lindsay from Little White Goat Cheese. Episode 12, go listen to the whole episode. Here's a highlight from it, though. How's things on the farm? How are the girls? Well, I didn't feed them this morning, so they're not impressed. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> so they'll get fed when I get home. Oh. It was too early. Oh. They were still sleeping. Yeah. They were still asleep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh well, it, it's probably a bit cool and fresh this morning, so That'll they're be probably right. just all snuggled up and They can together. go and eat the grass. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Instead of waiting for their special yeah. grain. Oh, yeah. dear. So little white goat cheese or little white goat 
it's a real family affair, isn't it? So you've got Mum Faye that helps you out <laughs> yes. in the cheese room, yep. helps you out at the markets. You've yep. got the grandchildren come and give lots of cuddles and love to the kids. Sure do. And Ross, your husband, you've got him... Got the whip out and got him well, in the yard. Well, he can wash up. He's not allowed to touch the cheese. Ah, fair <laughs> He's enough. He's the washer-upper. He's the washer-upper. <laughs> so it's a true family affair and obviously a lot of love and passion that goes into the creation of your beautiful cheese. And is that something, do you think, that comes through as your secret ingredient maybe? I think so. I looked at a lot of other dairies before I started mine and they bred the goats, took the kids off them, fed their milk but kept mums away. And I just, being an animal lover, I would just sit and cry. I know you have to do it in dairies. Well, so I, I don't do that. When they when the kids are born, they stay with their mums for a week and then I separate them at night. Mm-hmm. Mums can still sleep next to them because it's just a gate. Mm-hmm. And um, I milk mums in the morning and I always leave milk for the kids and then they romp and roam and Aww. with mums for the rest of the day. How beautiful. And then this nutty old lady has to chase up 40 or 50 kids and try and catch them and put yeah. them in the pen and I Oh, imagine Yeah, that. it's not pretty. You need your running <laughs> shoes, not your gum boots. Well, okay. I end up over in the paddock and upside down and oh. yeah, get there. So 50 young ladies yes. all in... All in waiting. All in waiting. Mm-hmm. How, how long is this the breeding season now? It's been a bit late with all the rain. We had the drought and the rain. It's sort of thrown things into a bit of chaos, but mid-October they'll start mm. and I'll be there yeah. waiting, helping. So you've got 50 girls in kid? Yep. Is that what you're saying, yep. kid? What if they all go in the first, like, oh, no, all go together? <laughs> they can't. <laughs> no, Mr Buck went down. Mr Mateo went down and took his time. So they don't all come right. together. So, yeah. So, so it's it could be good, like every day, but. Yeah, if is it was he the together, happiest goat on the oh, sunshine the smile coast? On his, he would just send it like he was exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> he was just taught. But he's back in his house now, so he's having a rest. Yep. Oh. He was very happy. <laughs> so you've got 50 girls and one buck? Yeah. Crikey, he's busy, isn't he's he? He's very busy. Yes. Does he get a rest? Through, through oh, he'll, he'll have a rest now till probably April. When I had the opportunity to buy a couple of goats, knowing nothing about goats, <laughs> And they, when they sold them to us, they must have gone, sucker. Mm. Because knowing now what I know, oh, you wouldn't buy them in a million years. One oh, had, you one had would boob, say. No, <laughs> no, for breeding. One had boobs like Dolly Parton and the other one had little finger boobies like, oh. how the hell are my hands oh. going to build? So, so do you have to have different size suction cups? No, they all no? just, just <laughs> do it. On. But I was hand milking at that stage. Wow. So the one with Dolly Parton boobies, I had to milk. One, two hands on one boob. Good golly. <laughs> so, yeah, not the great. You wouldn't. So was she called Dolly? Like how do no, you No, it was name? actually Possum and Perinda uh-huh. were the names. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you name them all, don't you? Yes. Yes. So, yes. so how do you identify one goat from another? Like do they have? Well, I suppose it's like going into a shopping centre. Someone's got blonde hair mm. and saggy boobs. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know which goat's got they and, and that's their identifying. It's B really cup, sad. D cup, e cup. Well, yes. <laughs> a triple E. Oh, yeah, goodness. yeah. You do. They, all their faces are different when you look at them. Yeah. Marco and Mel from Bella Dotty. The whole episode's on episode thirteen, but here's a highlight from that. And you have such a fascinating backstory, which is as broad as the countries you have lived and travelled, but here you are on the beautiful, beautiful, magnificent Sunshine Coast with your operations based at Coolum. What brought you here to our magnificent region and how did we get so lucky to have you? 
Well, it started 23 years ago, to be honest. I always had a love and deep desire to come to Australia, coming from South Africa. So I took my uh, rather heavily pregnant wife and um, flew to Australia and we hired a camper van and set off from Port Douglas and traveled all the way to Sydney, looking at spots with my um, sneaky intention of finding places that we could one day live in the future and obviously letting Mel develop a real love for the country that I wanted to move to, but she wasn't keen on it in the beginning. So that's how we came to Sunshine Coast. It was on the shortlist, on the very shortlist. And why wouldn't it be, isn't it beautiful? Well, we're very lucky to have you and I really am excited to dig into your story because it Mm. is quite fascinating. Marco, you grew up in Zambia. That's correct. Um, to Italian parents. Correct. Finishing school in South Africa, and then you had a choice to join your parents in Italy. But what was it like growing up as a child in Zambia? By today's standards, it would probably be classified as a totally everything would have been illegal. Mm. Uh, this is kids on the back of youths hanging on, barreling through the bush. It was a wonderful life, wonderful, simple, small communities. Everybody knew everybody. It was in the middle of Africa and it had some of the shortcomings, which was education, which is why I ended up in boarding school. But as a child, going camping and genuinely having wild animals, not in a reserve, wandering around your tents is just incredible memories that I have of childhood in Zambia. It was amazing. So how did you keep safe from those wild animals when you were a kid? You, you just kept quiet in the tents, to be honest. Uh, I would be you, shaking. You kept, I would be out of speak anyway. You kept anyway. very quiet. Yeah, and you learned. You learned little things. Like So when you were camping on the side of a river uh, at night, before you went to bed, you had to put the fires out because hippo don't like fires on the side of the river. And so they come out and they stomp them. They stomp them right next to your tents. So if you wanted to avoid having hippos come out and doing this, you put them out before. So you learn. So tell us, with all of that fascinating background and... Mel, you worked in PR and marketing and that's how you met, I understand, wasn't it? Yeah. How has that transcended into the creation of Bella Dottie. And tell us a little bit more about Bella Dottie and the amazing gourmet range of goodies that you create. There's one vital factor that we haven't touched on, being Italian. There's definitely a passion for food in our household. And so for us, looking to start a business here, A natural business for us to get into was we had a little bit of experience with food with customers in the ad agency in South Africa. And packaging has always been a love of Marco's. In fact, I hate taking him shopping with me because he walks up and down the aisles looking at packaging and wants to spend hours there, whereas I'm just there to get my groceries and get out of there. But so he has a love for packaging and design. I really enjoy working with people and we have this mutual love of food and customers. Customer service is something that I feel very strongly about as well and enjoy. So we put our minds together and and came up with Belladotti, which is a combination between our name, which is Guidotti, which most people can't pronounce, um, understandably, and then Bella for beautiful, which was we wanted to bring in a little bit of the Italian association. Mm. And it was beautiful was something that we thought would be good because it would automatically put people in the mind frame and thinking our products were good and desirable. And we developed our ranges, which have 
honestly all come about in our kitchen, either from adapting recipes that have been used in Marco's family for years or in our travels in Italy, going and picking up from the little local markets products that we thought this would work and you don't get anything like this in Australia. And if we could do this and adapt it and scale it up, it would be a really great concept to introduce. And that's where Balladotti was born. And we've just grown from product to product and range to range. And yeah, all underpinned by this passion for food. Yeah, absolutely. And I share that passion. Doggy donuts. Can you believe it? Emma Gibbons, episode 14. Here's a highlight from Hudson Toe. Thank you, Roz. I'm excited to be here too. Snuffle balls. <laughs> yeah, they're the ideal little play toy for inside where you can hide your Hudson Toke treats in and oh, throw them it. around the house. And who gets to ritual. name, who named it a snuffle ball? Oh, a snuffle ball? I don't know. I think because the dogs <laughs> snuffle inside them. <laughs> it's a cracking name. I love it. But basically Hudson Toke is a pet treat doggy pet heaven on earth. Even my mouth salivates at some of the absolute treats and delicious treats that you've created. What's your biggest seller? Probably all our bake treat range, especially in the birthday kind of cakes, birthday bones, because people love to celebrate that special moment with their dog. And obviously donuts, because who doesn't like a donut? And they get to share that moment with their dog and their coffee time as well. So yeah. Unbelievable. So you can go out and have a, well, you can have a puppuccino and a donut or a birthday cake with your pet. I just think that's, and they are, they're part of our family, aren't they? Oh, 100%. The name Hudson Toke, where, what was the inspiration behind that as a name for this brand of creation of unique pet treats? Yeah. So um, my husband and I really wanted to start up a retail brand and give it a go in the real world, so to speak. And we struggled trying to think of a name and we had our son with his imaginary dragons. Toke was his number one dragon and Huds was his number two dragon that used to travel with us everywhere. And he was playing with them behind us at the table and we're like, hmm, maybe we could call it Hudson Toke. And to us, it created a blank canvas of being able to diversify into a range of things because no one could really create a picture in their head of what Hudson Toke looked like. So it wasn't like a molly, which is that annoying barking, yapping dog that the neighbour has. (laughs) Sorry Um, to all the mollies in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So we just wanted to create a name that we could mould into anything. And that provided us that. And so it's a really personal, family-orientated name. A birthday cake for a horse. We go and give them a carrot. Why not a birthday cake? Yeah. Well, horses are becoming such a massive part of people's lives as well. I think even like though a lot of people don't ride, they'll still own a horse to be their backyard family member, so to speak, even. I've never been to a horse's birthday party. What's it like? Is there a piñata? Do you blow out the candles or how do you unwrap the presents with the hooves? <laughs> so I, I think quite a lot of the girls even put party hats on their horses yeah. and make it a big moment for their horse because, yeah, horses are such a special part of many little girls' lives and that goes on into womanhood as well because horses live for 30 years. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. so true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's such a massive part of their lives. And with the horse treats, so much more is based around training horses these days rather than just having them out in the paddock. So it enables that bond to be created so Mm. much more. 
So some of your treats are for training purposes, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the doggy yeah. treats, the horse treats, they are actually utilised for for training and I guess to reward animals on good behaviour and whatever else that you're wanting to do. Yeah, when them. we first started Hudson Toke, we basically started the horse treat industry in Australia because you couldn't buy any. It was just carrots and apples. You couldn't import them because of the biosecurity rules and because of my passion for horses, I thought... I really want to make a horse treat. Unbelievable. It's just amazing. I know you grew up on a cattle farm near Lockyer Valley. How much did your upbringing inspire your career in Petrick? It was massive. I was always bringing home animals from boarding school, whether it was the biology chickens or people's guinea pig babies. Mum would pick me up from boarding school and I'd have a menagerie ready to take home with me. People would be giving away horses because they couldn't handle them, so I'd take them on. We used to have about 15 horses, Wow! thanks to me. Yeah. (laughs) But luckily we had the land to do it. I was always the one going down the paddock in my bare feet, catching my dad's horses, saddling them up for him so that he could come riding with me. Nice. So So you it was a crop and cattle farm, so were you... Mustering cattle with stock horses, or yeah, just mustering yeah. with stock horses. I refused to learn to ride a motorbike, yeah, so that we always had to ride horses. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it was great. Smelt good in the studio this morning on episode fifteen. Karen and Lucy from Montfield Coffee. It's great to have you here on this beautiful, glorious day <laughs> on the Sunshine Coast. How lucky are we? So lucky. Yes, so lucky. Your affirmation, we treasure coffee for the flavours and aromas, for the way it connects us more closely to each other and for the way it lifts us up, almost draws me in to almost smell that beautiful aroma of freshly brewed coffee. But it's a statement that means more to you than that. Why was it so important, Karen, for you to bring to the Australian market a high-quality roasted coffee that is ethically produced? Thanks, Roz. That's a wonderful opening question because it's why we started our business. I came from a background as an educator and when you're a teacher, you really see immediately the impact that you have on young people and you can really see how by introducing them to ideas and to helping them to develop habits of excellence that you can really help them to develop into really, really thoughtful people. Why coffee? I think we just fell into coffee. (laughs) We were really interested in choosing an industry where there were a lot of problems. Coffee is historically a commodity that has had its core injustice. The whole conventional coffee supply chain is about how do we produce a commodity as cheaply as possible to maximize profits at one end of the supply chain. And so when we decided to move back to Australia and start a business, fair trade hadn't started in Australia yet. And it was very strong in Canada. It was very much part of the social conversation in Canada was thinking about where our commodities came from and and how to make the supply chain more just. So when we moved here and realized that that was going to be an emerging product, we decided that's where we would start. 
Maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on what fair trade is, I think it's maybe known by industry, but potentially maybe not by customers. And it's a hugely important factor, isn't it, of consideration when you're sourcing product. There Maybe there might be a few little pockets in Australia that grow coffee beans, but I think there might be a grower in Noosa. But really, largely, coffee beans are imported, aren't they? Because they're grown in places like Peru and Indonesia, where I think you source yours from Peru and Indonesia which is why fair trade is important because it's about making sure the farmers are paid a fair price, isn't it, which instantly fulfils your values and creating a transformative impact on people and communities. So maybe if you could elaborate on what fair trade is and what it means and what it represents. I think what makes fair trade special is it goes beyond paying a fair price. It's actually about capacity building and it's about how do we move from a very paternalistic model which says we know best, we know what will be best for someone else to say how do we build a model that is based on equality and on justice and on self-determination. So if as a business owner I am able to make my own business decisions and enter into the trade agreements that I want to and think about how I want to run my business and live my life, that means I have autonomy. I'm in a place where I'm encouraged to build my capacity. We have access to that. We have access to education. We have access to technology. We have access to resources and mentors. And fair trade is about making that available to those communities and those individuals, often women, who haven't had that opportunity to determine their own future, to make their own decisions, to make their own mistakes. And that's what sets fair trade apart is it's about grassroots democracy. It's about capacity building and it's about an entire community or cooperative learning how to make decisions and advance together. The flavours and the variants are so extensive and then you can you add whether it's oat milk or, mm. you know, soy latte or a decaf. It's just endless or a little piccolo or an espresso or a double shot. There's also influences from around the world. So the Italians love a really short black, strong, they just stand up and drink it at the counter. It's yeah. just whereas the Aussies, you know, you might have your simple old We like to sit and instant coffee it. even or whatever. We're becoming quite sophisticated in what mm. they enjoy with their flavours. But it really is intriguing. It's almost like this endless pot of just flavor and it's an extraordinary commodity, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like oil. Who knew, <laughs> you know, you could have an oil connoisseur and and it's it's quite astounding how much there is to know about oil and the influences and where it's sourced and the differences mm. and the different flavour profiles it has, mm. which is another whole discussion. Yeah. And mostly when we're thinking about, you know, reflecting on flavours and sourcing and that sort of thing, we're thinking about wine, but mm. there's so many different ways that you can add impact and flavour through to your product. Here's a highlight from episode 16, Chris Sell and Philip Hart from The Hatted Chef. The smoked meats mm-hmm. that you create at the dock, Malulabar, which are actually also the major ingredients in some of the beautiful flavours and the offering from The Hatted Chef. You're very famous for what? How do you create that magic? So it's a long process we do. We do it the same as the restaurant. So the Hatted Chef process is exactly the same. So the idea of it was not to 
dilute the product at all. So again, we, we do a long process brine with a signature rub, and then we do a 14-hour smoke across all the meats using high quality, exact same, we use the same brisket, we use the same pulled pork in the venue. And I just think it's it just uh, the process of sous viding as well. So that's what we do also do in the restaurant as well. I think it's a great process and it keeps the integrity of the product. And meat cooked long and slow yeah. seems to just really enhance the food and amplify the yeah, flavour, doesn't it? Yeah, the, the, everything, like whatever you put on it, this is going to be 10 times more more flavour. It can be just a simple spice rub or it can just be salt and pepper, but whatever, whatever you're going to do, that, that smoke really penetrates it and just gives it amazing mm. flavour and amazing texture. So brisket and pulled pork, generally the ones that you smoke, yep. Are they better cuts of meat? Do they respond better to the process and give you the flavour profiles that you're seeking? Would you consider using any other cut of meat? Um, we use those two because they're quite a bit of a high fat content in them, so it sort of protects them. So again, with the pork shoulder, the, sort of the rind and the fat protects it from drying out, and the brisket is a sort of a secondary cut. It's quite tough, so that that process really the the intramuscular fat sort of breaks down and moistens the entire entire joint of meat across yeah. both of them. Yeah, and I think where do you source your meat from? Does it so come? The pork shoulder is from Schultz Farm, which is on the coast, and we also get the brisket is from Toowoomba, so sort of Queensland sort of. Yeah, Queensland focus. sourced yeah. and yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah, my understanding is that potentially the tougher cuts of meat or the ones that you do cook longer respond more to flavour, don't they? Yeah. So, Whereas if you've got a beautiful steak. An eye fillet or a rib fillet, you wouldn't, no. would you? You just they they come into their own when you just pop them on the barbie. Yeah, that's it. And just yum, yummy, yum, yum. There's a lot more apart from magnificent flavors and what you've created, which is just amazing. There's a lot more to it, isn't there? Behind the hatted chef, and knowing that having a meal every day isn't something everyone can rely on, and wanting to use this venture to support the community. Phil, you developed a program committing to quality nutritious meals or funds to feed the vulnerable and support homelessness through the Hatted Chef. Tell us more about this amazing program and why it's important. <clears throat> well, I won't take complete glory for that idea because it was all of us. It was a collaborative idea. The funny thing, we were all sitting around during COVID when it first started and we are in the restaurant an empty restaurant at the time, thinking, you know, what can we do to obviously keep people employed because we had chefs and we had waiters and we had like people that we didn't want them to leave and we were cognizant of the fact that they've all got families to support as well. So we came up with the idea of pre-packaged meals. I had a chef, which at, the, at that time was called the Doc Takeaway or something, <laughs> I can't remember. And during the course of that whole thought bubble, there's going to be other people who are doing it tough and who aren't eating or getting three square meals a day because of circumstance, i.e. it could have been COVID, it could have been they mightn't have been in a good position before that. So we thought from the very outset that we would build that philanthropic ability to be able to feed people as as the sales of the Hatted Chef grew. We would put profit or we would make extra and we would then seek out who we could distribute it through. We wanted to do something that 
after COVID is going to keep on going and keep on doing it. And we sort of looking out in the market, we wanted to do something completely different. And that was a huge thing. As a chef, I didn't want to put my name on something that was, it was just going to be a mediocre product. It had to be good. I think, and I Phil and Jamie both understood that as well. And they were all sort of huge champions with that. That was it for me. And, and I really wanted to make it work. And I think we're, again, slowly successful. And yeah, that's basically it. We put his picture on the inside of the pack. Yeah. That's what clinched it for us. The what? Yeah. We put his picture oh, yes. on the inside of the pack. Yeah. <laughs> we were all sitting around during COVID when it first started and we were in the restaurant, an empty restaurant at the time, thinking, you know, what can we do to obviously keep people employed because we had chefs and we had waiters and we had like people that we didn't want them to leave and we were cognizant of the fact that they've all got families to support as well. So we came up with the idea of pre-packaged meals. I had a chef, which at, the, at that time was called the dock takeaway or something, I can't remember. And during the course of that whole thought bubble, there's going to be other people who are doing it tough and who aren't eating or getting three square meals a day because of circumstance, i.e. it could have been COVID, it could have been they mightn't have been in a good position before that. So we thought from the very outset that we would build that philanthropic ability to be able to feed people as as the sales of the Had a Chef grew. We would put profit or we would make extra and we would then seek out who we could distribute it through. We, we do a long process brine with a signature rub and then we do a 14-hour smoke across all the meats using high quality, exact same, we use the same brisket, we use the same pulled pork in the venue and I just think it's it just uh, the process of sous viding as well. So that's what we do also do in the restaurant as well. I think it's a great process and it keeps the integrity of the product. Oh, my gosh. Wombai Cheese Company, episode 17. Go listen to the whole thing, but here's a highlight we picked out from Beth. Everybody has a passion in life, but it's so good to have a passion in life and to actually be able to live it. So that's the first thing. That's that's sort of the crossover. But what led me to, to this, I really don't even know where the starting point of it is. We didn't eat like a lot of cheese as, as a, a family or anything. I think I cracked open a can of Yarra Valley dairy feta. It used to be in a, a can. And I was just like, my gosh, this is actually cheese. And then I just started this journey of, uh, you know, enjoying cheese. When I look back on some of the things I've done in my life, though, like I've lived in Europe for two years and I went to Cheddar Gorge and I went to Gruyere and I chased a giant wheel of cheese down a hill at Gloucester. As you do. Yes. Uh, the Cheese <laughs> Rolling Festival. That's what? a cheese rolling festival there. Oh, that would be a hoot. Yeah, that was fabulous. I haven't heard much about cheese rolling. Tell me what is involved. Well, there's a huge wheel of cheese. I'm not sure how many kilos it is. Wheelie big. Wheelie big. (laughs) And um, there's sort of like a man dressed quite um, eccentrically and he basically (laughs) rolls this cheese down the hill and then you just line up and you just go hell for leather chasing down a very, very, very steep hill. And, I mean, people break bones. They would. And there's a row of like very thick set men at the bottom that actually have to stop you because you would just keep going. So you basically get crash tackled. I mean, there's no real glory for catching the cheese at the end. If you do catch if you're the first one down, you just get to take home this ginormous wheel of cheese. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this particular day, it only happens once a year in this particular day. We did and we were you know, it had been raining and that we were just literally covered in mud. And then my husband and I got to the bottom. We were just like, oh, wow, and hug each other and high five and everything. And then 
his wedding ring was gone. <gasps> he lost his wedding ring that oh day. Oh, my goodness so, Oh, well, it's all for a good cause. Oh, never to be found again. <laughs> never to be found again. It may again. have been embedded in the cheese wheel. Probably. Someone's probably got it stuck in their <laughs> teeth right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what a, what a funny story. That's yeah. amazing. But the things you do when you're in other countries. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Get amongst it. Yeah. And then, you know, I've done lots of cheese classes and tried to do work experience, actually tried to start my own cheese business, but it's very hard. So kudos to original owner for being able to do it. And then in 2019, we actually took our children out of school and we drove around Australia in our caravan for 13 months. And whilst we saw fabulous amounts of Australia and did, you know, lots of natural things, I also dragged the kids and my husband to over 30 cheesemakers. Wow. Patient, um, all, patient yep, family. Indeed, they're indeed. All, this passion is real. Like yeah. she loves this stuff. And then I suppose it was serendipitous that a business that I admired from afar and that was not too far from home would become available for sale. So mm. we sort of took the opportunity then to buy it. And, yeah, that's sort of, sort of how it happened. Incredible. And it's sometimes you don't realise you're making a life or a dream for yourself. It's sort of happening yeah. away in the background. Mm. But then, you know, that whole saying that all paths lead somewhere. Well, they say if it's light, it's right. Yes. So yep. if you feel, you just feel like it just led you there and yes. it was just easy. Yeah, yeah. easy decision. It's the right decision. Yeah. I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Graham, the original founder who we're mm. talking about, in 2013. And he told me the story of he was a, an executive. I think he was living in Singapore at the time. And he woke up one day and said to his wife, I want to become a boutique cheesemaker, mm -hmm. as you do. Mm. As he did. Yeah. Came to the beautiful Sunshine Coast and created his first batch of cheese. I think it was called the Black All. Yes, I think it was the Black All Gold. Black or gold or Black All something or other. And then it wasn't long after that they changed the packaging and then that cute little cow on the front and the black yes. and white, very appealing packaging. So we were very, we were one of the very first supermarkets mm -hmm. to stock his product because it was 2013. And when we opened our new IGA Bly Bly in October, actually, this is our, our birthday month, Graham was there with his beautiful cheese, presenting it in our store on opening day and just living his passion. I think just to be authentic and I think like it'll shine through and I think you definitely have to show a lot of yourself, whether you like it or not. People want to see that and they want to see your staff. Um, obviously want to see the products that you make and I think you just have to stay completely on trend with what's happening and if reels are what's needed, you've got to do reels. Mm. If it's just still photos, then do still photos. But I think you've always got to be innovating and changing and just think of – show a different way to show your product. Just a good Aussie nut is what she said. Episode 18, this is from Sarah Leonard from Nutworks. An important part of any company's evolution is their people. And I'm delighted to introduce one of Nutworks' key leaders – international sales manager, Sarah Leonard, to tell us more about this wonderful Sunshine Coast-based Australian manufacturer. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Roz. That was a great introduction. Oh, thank, thank you. very you. much. It's very great. grateful for you for having uh, me. Yes, it's it's a delight. Thank you. And uh, really excited to be able to explore and share the Nutwork story because yes. it's a brand that's so well recognised on the Sunshine Coast and really well loved mm. and Nutwork sits in that beautiful little pocket at Yandina near mm. the Ginger Factory, yep. Pioneer Coffee. Yep. It's like a little hub, isn't it? Absolutely. And we actually wanted to 
bring those three businesses together to make it the hub of, of Yandina, just as yeah. you're saying. And we can talk a little bit later about something pretty exciting that we're doing with Pioneer yeah. Coffee. Yes. For yes. you, yes. which we can talk about a bit later. But yes, yes. no, it's a great little spot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And beautiful Yandina. Yeah, it's stunning. Trees are grown in the rich, fertile soils along Australia's east coast. However, some regions mean other common names are used, such as the bopple nut, mm. which is what I grew up talking about the bopple nut yeah. or the Queensland nut. As we are closely located near Bopple, Mm. which has the bauble nut or the mm-hmm. bauble nut we used to say as kids. Yeah. The bauble nut is probably the better pronunciation of that. Is this where you source your nuts from or where do your macadamias come from that Nutworks uses? Great question. So we started off with the four growers that started the company primarily sourcing their macadamia nuts from the Sunshine Coast region, ranging from Glasshouse Mountains through to the southern areas of Gympie. We now, as a very fast-growing macadamia processor, gather our growers from the northern rivers of New South Wales all the way up to Bundaberg. Mm. So it's a pretty vast region. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and there's more and more, you see more and more macadamia nut orchards. Yeah, you do. Popping up around the Bundaberg region and it's there's lots of water there. They're um, irrigated as well. There's irrigation available. I suppose that's an important part of absolutely. making sure that the trees can flourish. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Bundaberg have got a great growing region. Yeah. We have some of our best nut and shell supply quality wise that comes from the Bundaberg region mm. and of course the Sunshine Coast region too. Yeah. That's certainly the spot. So you're still sourcing from different farms around the Sunshine Coast? Absolutely. So the majority of the Sunshine Coast macadamia growers supply to us. Mm. I'm not quite sure what the exact percentage is but I would be quite inclined to say most of them do mm. send the nut to us and we're certainly growing the Bundaberg region as well when it comes yeah. to the, the Nutworks family and the growers that are an integral part of that. We came over as, as a skilled migrant. We got married in 2008, we emigrated the same year and literally landed on the Sunshine Coast back in 2008 and mm. it was beautiful, loved it but it was the GFC I think was just yes, kind of it was. Yeah. on its way right. um, at the peak and we were just so naive to it all and I really struggled to find work actually mm. to be honest, it was a real difficult time. I didn't want to be in sales, I didn't want to get back into recruitment but landed myself as a BDM manager for a recruitment company in Alex Headlands and it was out on my travels that I met what was the CEO of Nutworks, Kylie Watson and when I got made redundant I put the feelers out there to a few people and she was one of them. So I flicked my resume off to her and honestly, the rest is history. I became part-time admin, part-time sales. Nutworks was really quite small. They didn't have a salesperson back then. And yeah, coming on 14 years ago and here we are today. It was a long time coming. It took some time for us all to find the right pieces and yeah but we're here but it's so exciting it is and so, they taste they taste divine yeah, absolutely taste divine and it's just i'm so i'm just so proud of it yeah and it's a true locavore mm. collaboration yep and that's what this whole podcast is about is yeah. about just exploring all the opportunities to create something really unique that's a testament to our beautiful local region yeah and it's, yeah, something I'm so, so proud of. We, we export to around about 15 to 16 different countries mm. and we're just rolling over to something along the lines of 100 containers this year mm. to export wow. of the nut in the shell yeah. and also the kernel, Yeah, but primarily raw. Yeah, We were fortunate enough to be part of the Morton Bay Food and Wine Festival and unfortunately that got shut down during the festival thanks to... Another closure. I but remember we, that. I was supposed to go to You that were. Day you too. were one of our guests. Yes. We created a Morton Bay bug flavoured macadamia. 
Mm-mm. which Matt Galinsky was due to cook with and create some really cool dishes. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think we ended up with about two and a half thousand packs that we had to sell through the retail shop in Yandina and they flew off the shelf. Yep. Thanks so much for listening to the highlights episode of the Locavores podcast. Roz White will be back next week for the very last episode of 2022 and it's going to be a good one. A Locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown, raised or produced locally. This is the Locavore podcast brought to you by White's IGA.